Welcome to the short introduction to Talking Wild Madness, episode 45. This is Adam. I uh, just wanted to jump on and let you know that the recording yesterday went, went quite well, and I think we have finished all the recording part of, of the new album, which will be available on online very soon. Uh, Mick is in the process of mastering, putting everything together. I've just tacked on a song at the end of this podcast called I Can't Wait to Hold You in My Arms Again. And it's, it hasn't been mastered yet, but it's, it, it gives you some idea of, uh, of the, what kind of album it, it, uh, it, it'll be. I still don't have a name for it, so if anybody has any suggestions, please jump on the Talking Wild Madness site on the Anchor podcast site and leave a recorded message uh, if you have any amazing names for this album because I don't have any at all. So I'll either name it after one of the songs themselves or, uh, yeah, maybe we can come up with something better. Uh, So I hope you enjoy the episode. Thank you. Welcome to episode 45 of Talking Wild Madness. This is Adam, and we're coming from Lower King in Albany looking out at what is probably one of the most iconic Australian uh, images that you might ever come across. And it is a very large farm paddock, and the grass is dry and uh, a little bit yellow, a little bit more yellow than green. There's still a bit of green in there, but it's it's more uh, it's more yellow. And it, it's, uh, it's a paddock that is usually teeming with sheep but at the moment they are all huddled underneath uh, this beautiful big giant tree I don't know what kind of tree it is it's not a eucalyptus tree but it's it's a great big tree it must be about 20 25 meters high and it has branches that go all the way down right almost touching the ground and it puts a big ring of shade giant ring of shade and there must be there must be about 50 or 60 sheep just all hanging out in the shade together in the middle of the day because it, it feels like about 30 degrees today I don't know if it is but it, it, it feels like it the sheep look very idyllic quite peaceful but they're not very uh, they're not very switched on the old sheep so maybe that's that's one of the keys to looking serene and peaceful. There's a roadside game we sometimes play called Beep the Sheep, which is when you're driving on the highway and there's a whole congregation of sheep near the fence. If you um, if you beep your horn, it startles all the sheep and uh, and they take off running in the other direction. Now it's not the most ethical uh, ethically minded game. Uh, but it makes makes the kids in the back seat laugh, and sometimes makes the person in the passenger seat laugh too. Uh, so without without endorsing beeping the sheep, it's certainly lovely to to take take them in in this vista right now. It almost it, it almost looks like if you took out the fence lines, yeah, it almost looks like and the cars in the in the distance. It looks like a, a Frederick McCubbin painting. 
and and it could it could definitely do with uh, a fallen log on the ground and a fellow with a beard with a with a heavy look on his face he would just fit that perfectly and uh, and maybe a, an errant wife with a long flowing skirt walking around carrying a baby with a scowl on her face It is such a magnificent country, a countryscape, countryside. It is absolutely unbelievable. Uh, we were driving this morning and the radio was on and story after story, it was, the, it was news time, it was 8 o'clock in the morning and every single story was related to the coronavirus. And the first story was the coronavirus is now in in this part of China and it's, uh, more people are dying and the death rate to infection rate has increased and authorities are doing this and authorities are doing that and then the next story would be uh, the coronavirus has now been picked up in Israel and Italy and uh, Italian authorities, can you imagine the Italian authorities? The Italian authorities are doing their very best to, uh, to contain the coronaviruses so really there's not much hope the coronavirus is obviously supremely intelligent because if you want to take over the mainland if you want to take over the European continent and you don't want to be stopped in your first assault you have almost zero chance of being contained by the Italian bureaucracy by the by the government the Italian run government in any in any stage of history, maybe except for the early to middle stages of, of the uh, of the Holy Roman Empire, uh, but since Nero, I think the Italian government is has been pretty much the same, uh, insanely chaotic and a little bit lax and a little bit mad. I think that's what the that's the price they pay for having such good food and and such a glorious food culture. Is that when you when you have when you invent dishes like fettuccine, uh, parmigiana? No, not parmigiana. What's the white cream sauce one? Fettuccine. Maybe it's just fettuccine. Fettuccine carbonara. I'm not sure. If you're inventing things like fettuccine carbonara, anyway. If if you're in, inventing things like stuffed shells and. Uh, and bucatini and and garlic and olive oil and your and your food culture says have a glass of wine with breakfast and your food culture says go out to a restaurant for lunch and then go have a nap have a snooze and then and then come back then come back to work come back to work at three and then you can take off at seven and then you can stay up till midnight and have a, a little a little supper and a little a little chianti on the on the piazza um, yeah, people who are involved in that food culture do not, uh, amazing authoritarian, uh, amazing authoritarians do not make, they are not cut from the same cloth. It was one of the first, one of the first jokes my, uh, my friend Colin, who's a painter, one of the first jokes he ever told me, I haven't seen Colin in 
maybe 20 years. But he was one of the first guys who encouraged me to, to start writing to, after, after we got to know each other for a few months. One of the first jokes he told me was, what, what, what was the difference between uh, Italians and toast? And I said, I had no idea what the difference between Italians and toast was. And he said the difference was that you could make soldiers out of toast. So I think, he now, speaking of Colin, Colin, Colin's a painter who's an abstract, um, what would you call him? An abstract, impressionist, um, emotionalist painter, if there's such a thing. And he's also colorblind which he takes great pride in, in being a painter who's also colorblind. And his paintings, he's taken himself to Italy numerous times, actually. He's He's gone on tour and had exhibitions in Italy for his paintings. I don't know if they know that he's colorblind, um, but he's gone there multiple times and has been paid to go there and flown over there and has spent months and months like in Tuscan re- residencies uh, and, and Rome residencies in Rome and painting these painting these very unusual pictures painting these very very unusual pictures that maybe only a colorblind abstract impressionist emotionless painter could paint he used to ride a bicycle he used to get around riding a bike and this was when I actually met him in Albany and he used to come and drink. Oh, he used to be a barman, bartender. And he used to come in and drink quite a bit. But he would come in often, but he would sit at the bar and he would drink very slowly. And he would buy half pints of, of beer, half pints of Swan Draft. Literally, that's all I knew for a whole year. And I'd very very seldom ever see him uh, drunk but he'd always be drinking and because he was always drinking he didn't have a car so he used to ride a push bike around town uh, now he was in his he was in his 40s at the time and he was living at his parents house at the time now I'm very also aware as I make this podcast I'm living at my parents house at least for another eight days. So there is a little bit of irony there. But he used to ride this push bike, and he used to call it Verdello. He, he named his bike Verdello, which I th- believe is a sweet white wine that they grow down here. Because Colin, as well as being an abstract, impressionist, emotionalist, colorblind painter, artist, was also a wine aficionado. And he worked uh, at, at the, there was a few bottle shops down here in Albany. Well, they still are. And they they don't just have, um, they just don't have the regular fare of wine. They stock a lot of the local wines. Even some of the petrol stations down here stock really good local wines. But Colin was a wine aficionado down here and really had amazing taste in wine. And he would be a judge at, at wine shows. And his philosophy was to never spit the wine 
out. If you really wanted to taste and judge a wine, you, uh, yeah, it was it was just completely the wrong thing to do to be spitting it out into a bucket. So he used to ride around on on this uh, on this bike all year round, twelve months of the year. And if you've ever been to Albany, it rains for six months out of the year. And he would uh, just, yeah, cycle around on this thing. And then one day, the, his bike got stolen. Verdello, Verdello got stolen. And he put up uh, wanted posters all around town asking for the bike to be returned. And he also asked me to write a poem for uh, in memory of Verdello. Because even though he was putting the posters up around town, he still... Uh, he still he he realized that he was there was never coming back. He realized that the bike was gone, and as he called it Verdello, every time he mentioned it to me, I pictured like a horse because that was it sounded like the horse, a name you'd give a horse. Um, Verdello's remnants or something silly, or Black Verdello or or Verdello climbing. There comes Verdello climbing around the outside, and he's six lengths out. So. I think putting the wanted posters up for Verdello was more of a grieving process for, for Colin. And he probably liked the creative act of, of making the wanted posters. And he also probably enjoyed being that lunatic who was wandering around town putting up wanted posters for his for his bike as a 40-year-old man. I think there's a, it's a very sweet scene, a very sad, melancholic scene. Uh, you know, the idea of this... Uh, painter, this, this colorblind painter walking around at night, stapling wanted posters to to wooden lampposts in Albany, grieving over the loss of, of his uh, of of his of his bike. And he asked me to yeah to. It was like a poem. It was almost like a eulogy. I think that's in his head. That's probably what it was. And in my head, it was too. He had. I was going to say he had personified Verdello so much, but he had he had equinified Verdello so much that I actually thought it was a real horse. I'm going to have to look up if equinified is a real word. It should definitely be. Uh, yeah, there's the other word. Uh, anthropomorphic. Anthropomorphification. Yeah, so there's got to be an equinification or something like that. So I wrote this poem for him, and uh, this was this would have been this would have been 20 years ago. And I gave it to him over the bar, and I, I had taken it to a. Uh, like a shop, uh, like an office works, but they didn't have office works in Albany 20 years ago. So I took it to the local version of that. And this was 20 years ago, so this was not ever, hardly anyone had internet in their homes and not many people had printers in their homes. So I went into this printing office works kind of place and I think it cost me 40 cents to get the page printed out and to get it. Uh, laminated. I think I might have even brought it in on a on a floppy disk, or I typed it out on on a typewriter. 
Uh, I mean, it wasn't that old. It wasn't that long ago, but I, I did like having a typewriter. I got an old typewriter and used to write a, uh, write a few songs on there, and that felt very nice. That felt very, very, very nice. Sometimes I turn the microphone up on my laptop, so then when I hit the keys, it sounds like a typewriter. Anyway. So I got this, yeah, I got this piece of paper printed and laminated, and... I wish I had made a copy of it, but I gave it to Colin. I gave it to Colin while he came into the bar one night and, and was drinking his half pints of beer. And uh, he took the the piece, the, the sheet from me, and he wasn't really sure what it was. I don't know if he was ex not expecting me to follow through on what he was asking me to do, or if he was just joking about it at the time or whatever. But he, he took it... And I didn't tell him what it was. I just handed it over to him. And he probably thought I was giving him a menu because it was laminated. He probably thought it was like a new wine list or something. And he had a look at it. And then when he realized what it was, his entire demeanor changed. And it's not that he was hostile or anything in any way when I gave him the piece of paper. But there was a sense of real true reverence that just swept over him. And then he just took the poem in. He he read it to himself, and he took his time. It was only a, it was only uh, at one A4 page. And I think it had two rows of of four lines uh, of paragraphs with four shortish lines. So it might have had 15 stanzas, 20 stanzas at the most. No, it wouldn't have had 20, maybe 16. And he read it through really slowly. And he actually got tears in his eyes. He actually got tears in his eyes. And he he reached over and ex open, extended his hand. And he shook my hand. And then he said, I have to go home. And he didn't finish the beer. And then he, he kind of tucked the, the laminated sheet under his arm. And then... Walked out, walked out slowly out of the bar. Um, it was quite a, quite a uh, beautiful moment. It was quite a beautiful moment. And then I later found out because he took me uh, a few weeks before or a few weeks after. He took me back to meet his brother Terry, who was a musician. And myself and Terry became really good friends. And I, st I still see Terry to this day. I saw Terry, saw Terry yesterday. And myself and Terry ended up playing music together. And about six months later, I was I was playing music in uh, Terry's shed. Terry plays. At the time, he was playing a lot of guitar, a lot of uh, instrumental. Uh, blues guitar. Now he plays almost exclusively Irish Irish music on the guitar and the box accordion and the accordion and the flute and the violin. He's he's really gone down the uh, Irish rabbit hole, so to speak, of, uh, of the Irish music rabbit hole, which is a deep and dark and wonderful hole to, to go down. Uh, and while we were playing 20 years ago in the shed, uh, the the poem of, of Verdello got brought up by Terry and I asked Terry did Colin ever show it to him 
and Colin uh, and Terry said Colin had stapled the poem above his um, above his bedhead, and it was still there six months later. And he woke up to this this tribute to his horse that was actually a bicycle. And it's it's quite thrilling. It's quite thrilling just what human beings can give meaning to. Just what really matters to another human being. And for some people it can be a partner or their children or uh, their dogs. And for some people it can be their bicycle. And it's, it's interesting how we put different kinds of uh, criteria or a hierarchy on levels of theft. Uh, if you steal someone's car, it's very, very bad. If you steal someone's bicycle, well, that's not so bad. That's not so bad. If you steal someone's child's bicycle from their front lawn, well, that's not so bad. That's not, you know, it's stealing someone's actual bike, that's that's terrible. Stealing someone's car, that's atrocious. Now, what? stealing someone's wife or stealing someone's husband, well, that's not a crime. <laughs> you can do that. That's not a problem. Stealing someone's children through that process, that's also not a crime. And it's very, very interesting how we come to those values these agreed values, the hierarchy of agreed values, what is criminal and what is not criminal, and what is more criminal and what is less criminal. So I'm pretty sure you can steal someone's dog and kill it and eat it if you're in if you were either Samoan or Chinese, if you were into 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 that stuff. Or maybe you can kill and eat your own dog, not kill and eat your neighbor's dog. There was a Samoan man in Perth a few years ago who slaughtered and ate his like bull mastiff, and he cooked it for his friends. It was like a they all had like a barbecue, and he had to go to court. And his, the defense was that this was common practice in Samoa and I think the man got off I think the man wasn't uh, I think he humanely slaughtered the dog as much as as much as anybody can humanely slaughter a dog or a sheep all these sheep under the tree or a cow or saw a, a horrific picture today apparently a, a lady in Saudi Arabia just got decapitated because she had the audacity to murder a man who was raping her. Now, I have to check if that was even a real thing that happened, or if that was just a, one of those stories that 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 got that someone put up. I don't know. But there's a very, 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 very different set of values applying to different things. Whew.
You are the last thing on my mind When I close my eyes at night You are the first thought in my head My morning surprise When I turn and look I remember you're not there But no matter what I do I still see you everywhere Well, I need you, darling, life The river needs to run And I feel you need me like you Flower needs the sun There's never been such belonging Between a woman and a man And I can't wait to hold you in my arms again Come with me throughout the day Help me walk through this world You keep my heart warm and my back straight Just the thought of you, my girl I feel like I could walk through fire If you were on the other side Everything that fills my dreams Comes true when you're by my side Well, I need you, darling, life The river needs to run And I feel you need me like a flower needs the sun Never been such belonging Between a woman and a man And I can't wait to hold you in my arms again And I can't wait to hold